Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland on News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Today, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Coming up on today's show, the president of Italian's soccer league, Serie A, Lorenzo Cassini, joins us to explain exactly why there's such a huge flood of international investors going into Italian football clubs right now. And the way that we inform and entertain ourselves in Ireland has changed radically in recent years. Now, a new report by PwC sets out a question. Is the old media dying as competition for our attention sends advertisers over the top and into the palms of our hands? And finally, have you always dreamed of taking a sabbatical from work? Well, I'll be joined by someone who did just that. Author of Radical Sabbatical, Emma Rosen, joins us to explain why more people are taking time out to find the answers to deeper career questions. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Well, first up today, you could be listening to this now on your iPhone. You could be listening on a smart device in your kitchen or even through your computer. Avenues for radio, which were unthinkable a decade ago. So exactly where are we getting our info and our entertainment from now and what's likely to happen in the years ahead? Joining me now to discuss a new piece of research by PwC is Connor Ford from PwC and Brianna Parkins of Journal.ie. You're both very welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Now, Connor, I'll start with you first. So this is a survey about essentially where people get their entertainment and news from. It's quite a big survey, 52 countries in total. Tell us just about the Irish returns on this. Where are people living digitally now in Ireland? Yeah, it's it's a a very comprehensive report, Mandy, as you say. Um, Covers almost 80% of the world's population and we've managed to distill that down and parse out the Irish numbers from that. And what we're seeing is... um, yeah, very strong growth in the Irish market over the next um, five years, uh, a growth rate of um, 4.5 um, annually, which is superb, uh, slightly behind uh, global average. Uh, but it must be borne in mind that, you know, when calculating these figures, the global average takes in certain regions that are uh, going through accelerated growth. And when you look at Ireland compared to some of the Western European countries, uh, we're absolutely in line and uh, growing very strongly. So we are we are in line, I should say, with global growth as well. But when we when we break it apart, we'll see where some of the the differences lie. Mm, okay, so let's start off by looking at the media side of of things and where people get their news from. And Brianna, I might bring you in here um, for your part. You're you're part of obviously one of Ireland's biggest digital news offerings. Looking at the media element of the research that PwC have done. And maybe in particular that newspapers segment. Uh, what did what was your takeaway from from the Irish research returns? I mean, it was nothing that we weren't expecting. We know that print circulation figures are dropping. We know that revenues from traditional advertising are dropping, and we know that the digital revenue is not. Um, increasing at a rate that will offset the loss of those normal big print ads that we that we have and also those big print ads they go for a lot more money than the digital ads uh, i can't speak for the rates in in ireland because i wasn't here 10 years ago but 10 years ago in australia a full page ad could cost you between 50 to 75k um in a in a major market and you're just not going to make that off uh, the smaller ads you see running down the side of a page so newspapers have been facing this problem for a while and there's always the the option to to boost your digital subscriptions we know the irish times um 
um, and the Irish Independent and other sort of um, legacy newspapers did a really good job during the pandemic of increasing their subscriptions, but those revenues are the revenues are still going to fall. Mm. Connor, just to, to to pick up that point about advertising, particularly for print and digital media, um, the print advertising declining by eleven percent per per annum, but mobile up three percent. Surely, on those figures, it's not going to be long before digital advertising overtakes its print counterpart. What what was that? Absolutely. What effect will that have? No, you're absolutely right, Mandy. And that's what we're seeing in the data. Um, we feel, or, or statistically, um, looking at these models, it looks like the tipping point where uh, digital advertising surpasses uh, more traditional print and media will be around 2026, 2027. Always hard to call, call when you're projecting that far in future, but there certainly is uh, a transfer of attention and eyeballs uh, moving to moving to digital. And just to further that point, I mean, the, the big accelerators that we see and, you know, people will feel this in their in their everyday lives. And that's I think that's what's great about this report. But mobile is really driving the surge here. Um, we're seeing increasing um, growth in mobile across Internet access and Internet advertising. Mm. And that's, as you say, that's that's not just for news. That's where people get their entertainment as well. So what, what did you find about that entertainment uh habit, if you like. How has that changed? Yeah. Yeah. I think this report in itself brings some colour and some data to what we feel in our everyday lives. I mean, I commute in the mornings and I can tell you that most of the train are um, nice streaming uh, movies and content from their their phones on the way into work and on the way home. And that's definitely a big uh, element of the data that jumps out. So we see huge growth in what's called over the top uh, and that's streaming services, uh, n- lots of new incumbents coming into the market, as people will know. Um, and we see about 9.1% growth um, over the next five years in that area. So that's got huge growth potential. Mm. Brianna, just going back to, to, to your own offering, you're um, obviously an online mobile offering. Um, how do you, you know, attract people, I suppose, and stand out? I know that the fact-checking side of Journal.ie is a big part of your brand. What What's your unique selling point to try and grab those um, eyeballs that, that Connor's mentioned there? Other than just being like the most amazing uh, press outlet in Ireland and always coming up with stellar stories. And modest, uh, no. very modest. <laughs> I mean, the journal's quite interesting because uh, it's, it's free. Um, and there's not many of those in the market, in the Irish market in particular. And sort of interesting, maybe 10 years ago, there were discussions around, do we make newspapers, newspapers lean towards, um, you know, we should go completely free so people can access our content and then we'll be able to build up ad revenue because we have more eyeballs on our page. We have to sell our ad rates higher. Um, and now they're going back to the subscription model because they were seeing that, that the digital ad revenue just wasn't there um, and it wasn't replacing. So now they're trying to, to grab more money off the subscription side, whereas the journal has just relied on people coming to us in that pure traffic um, and just maintaining that brand of good uh, sort of neutral journalism. Like if you look at our opinions column, um, we had a meeting uh, the other week and Adrian Acosta, um, our, our big boss, uh, made the really good point that the opinion section they aren't written by people talking about things they don't know. They're, they're, they're lived experience. The opinion section is is a is a channel for representation. So you might have a trans person talking about trans issues instead of a regular sort of newspaper 
crotchety old columnist, do you know what I mean, writing about how they feel about trans issues. So I think that's the point of difference for the journal is it's a really trusted media source because it doesn't seem to take a line. Well, firstly, apologies to Eddie Crusty, old columnists who are <laughs> listening to us today. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Newstalks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Brianna Parkins from Journal.ie and Connor Ford from PwC's Media and Entertainment Practice. Um, Connor, just back to you. Are there ways in which the Irish figures uh, are out of sync with global trends? Yes, uh, in terms of digital advertising, um, we see that the global trend is is projected to grow at about 9%, whereas Ireland is set to grow at about 5.1%. But I think, again, uh, reflecting on, you know, how Ireland matches up globally, uh, there is a disparity here in terms of demographics and stuff like that. So a lot of these new uh, emerging regions um, is a very young population coming online um, and it's mobile first. Um, so there is a transition there. Um, but other than that, uh, if you were to look at Western European countries or let's say more mature markets, um, Ireland definitely stacks up in terms of its projected growth rate and is right in line. Mm. Brianna, you're obviously originally not from Ireland. How do you think that the Irish mediascape compares to other places that you've worked? I mean, when I got here, I was surprised about how many newspapers were still left intact. Like you have, uh, I think it is eight daily, eight daily, sort of 15 all up national newspapers, including daily and weekly. Australia, with a population of 25 million, that's five times the size of Ireland, has two two daily national papers like that is it's it's amazing and and i really noticed the the investment in local news and there was a report dcu put out a really good report um about a month ago talking about digital media trends and one of the top interests of irish people when it comes to to looking for news and 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 to to find where they want to go to find out what's happening local news remains uh one of the top interests across two reports actually also in the the, the Future of Media Commission. So there's this real investment in wanting to know what's going on at a local level that seems to be sustaining a really good amount of newspapers across, you know, local towns, uh, countywide, and then all the way up to national. So yeah. there seems to be more of a saturation, which is a good thing. You know, we saw the, the Australian industry get decimated, I think, or decimated is the wrong word, it's more than decimated. I think it was 60,000 jobs went in about 15 years. Um, that's up to the last count about a year ago. Um, then there was more job losses in COVID. So it seems like Irish media has weathered the storm maybe a little bit better, especially in print. Well, just moving on from the media landscape, Connor, uh, what about other areas like the metaverse? How are we doing there? Ah, the metaverse, probably the most uh, used and least understood term in our, our lexicon at the minute. I always find that the metaverse is uh, always, you know, in, sli- in sight, but slightly out of reach. Uh, you're <laughs> always told, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be the big thing next year. and We're all going to be, you know, wearing headsets and, and virtually meeting, but it never actually happens. So how, how are I, how many people in Ireland are actually using it? Well, I think I think just take a step back. That is, it's a totally fair point. I mean, I think this term was first coined um, 30 years ago and it's still quite hard to define. Um, ultimately, look, it, you know, Bill Gates uh, has stated the metaverse is here now, uh, you know, and I look around and think where. Uh, so it is, ultimately, it's um, a convergence of technology trends and we're already seeing the building blocks of that in place. Things like, Uh, cryptocurrencies, um, blockchain, even cloud computing. These are the seeds of the metaverse. And it's really a simulated digital version of our current internet as we experience it. So, yeah, I mean, 
to think about people running around with headsets and stuff on, yes, there's definitely a bit of that and VR allows us into that immersive technology, but it's also uh, many other factors like um, augmented reality, you know, holograms and all of the big tech giants uh, are all looking at different aspects of this in many different ways. Um, so if you if you want to uh, conceive of the world that the tech visionaries are, 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 are propagating to us at the minute, um, that definitely is some long, a long way off, potentially 10 or more years. Mm. Now, um, one of the other things I picked up from the research was that mobile broadband issue and that um, there's more devices going to be, it's going to be more mobile broadband as opposed to fixed broadband, which will come as a welcome relief to people who could never get the fixed broadband in the first place. So have we sort of leapfrogged over that problem, do you think? Um not necessarily. Okay, so I mean, the growth in this area is strong, right? And again, I would refer to Western Europe as being our kind of benchmark or our litmus test. You're absolutely right in saying that mobile broadband is accelerating the growth, um, but fixed broadband is still absolutely an essential part of this um, in terms of reaching communities, schools, businesses, and so forth, and having a, a stable, fast, reliable internet. Okay, so we know that. However, that said, bro- mobile broadband technology is improving. Uh, it is it is uh, dependent on how close you are to the exchange, um, but um, our houses are being full of more connected devices now, smart TVs, smart speakers, and everything else that comes with it, including Hoovers and all the rest. And um, really, um, having a reliable broadband is, is, is essential to, to operate in our homes at the minute. But we see mobile growth um, accelerating uh, at about 9% over the period whereas the sort of fixed uh, broadband growth will will remain at about three, which is healthy, I should say. Mm. So, Brianna, I'll come for a final word to you on this. What's your take on the the research here, um, your view of the entertainment and and media landscape in in Ireland at the moment? Do you think it's in a healthy place? These growth rates kind of tally with what you guys are seeing in journal.ie? I mean, growth rates are a really interesting time because... It might sound really positive. It's like, great, you know, digital digital advertising, um, the revenue from that is growing, the rates are growing, all good things. But we're not talking about the Tume Herald's digital advertising rates growing. Mm. Facebook and Google make up the vast majority of digital advertising um, in Ireland and in many countries. And I think the, the DCU report said that they'd probably be accountable between the two of them by 2025 for 92% of digital advertising which means that that money is not going to be flowing back into the Irish economy. It's going to go abroad. Um, And this was such a problem that the Australian government did something quite radical. They started making Facebook and Google, uh, they started making them pay for their news content. So when things popped up in the Facebook feed or uh, the search engine, they now have to pay um, Australian companies like Rupert Murdoch's company, uh, Channel 9 slash Fairfax, they're now getting that money back because that was such a problem. So when we say growth, it's not always a good thing across the board. Growth could just mean a good thing for the giant tech companies, not so much the newspapers at a national or even local level. Yeah, because funding the journalism that lies behind all of this content is perhaps the most important part of this conversation that we're still probably not having at a right level. But I suppose that's another entire day's discussion. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Connor Ford, Director of PwC's Media and Entertainment Practice and journalist Brianna Parkins from Journal.ie. Thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining us today. After the break, find out why more people are venturing beyond their own professions to seek out the perfect career and get some tips on how to plan for your own sabbatical from someone who's already done it. 
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, the career sabbatical or timeout is a concept that has long been common in the academic world, but as the war for talent now rages and we all know it's uh, taking off at the professional workplaces as more and more of us are demanding more time out to explore other options. I'm joined now by author Emma Rosen. Emma's book, The Radical Sabbatical, provides some really interesting insights into the thought process behind all of this. And she takes us through her own journey in that book. Emma, you're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, Emma, there's lots of evidence around at the moment to suggest that more and more people are looking at taking sabbaticals. And I think there's definitely um, a feeling around that, at least, that more employers are open-minded about giving those sabbaticals, which will be mm-hmm. welcome news. But can we start off today by talking about your own personal journey? How did your road start? Yeah, of course. Um, so I started uh, my career out in the public sector working for the civil service um, over in London, um, and that was sort of straight out of university, um, and, you know, a big literary grad scheme, um, and quite quickly felt that it, it wasn't quite right for me, but kind of stuck it out for several years before kind of coming to the conclusion that, you know what, this, this just isn't right for me. Um, but I felt that sort of the careers education that I'd had and the careers provision hadn't really prepared me to choose something other than the thing I'd very first chosen to do. Mm. Um, I'd never had exposure to lots of different types of careers um, I've never had the opportunity to have work experience across a range of different options. Um, so when I realized that the career I had chosen wasn't right for me, I had absolutely no idea what to do instead. Um, and I've been sort of saving up for the previous few years uh, and I decided to take a sabbatical um, where I wanted to focus specifically uh, on a career change. Um, so I set up my own project um, and I spent the year working in 25 different jobs through sort of short-term work experience placement uh, before my 25th birthday. Um, so the project I kind of called 25 before 25, um, just to literally explore all of the different types of careers that I could potentially be interested in, um, what they were actually like before committing to a complete career change uh, in one of them. And obviously, that's quite an extreme example of what you might choose to do with your sabbatical. Um, but for me, it's been, it's completely changed my life and the course of my life. And it's been an incredibly positive experience. Yeah, now, as you say, and I've never seen a more aptly titled book in my life. It certainly was a radical sabbatical. <laughs> and I've read through some of your experiences. But what I was most impressed by was um, your ability to get so many um, placements or shadowing. Uh, n- n- it was really your networking that, that amazed me most. And it was obviously a very, very important part of that particular aspect of your journey. What Can you talk us through the tools that are available to people who want to reach out to companies to try and test a new career now? What did you do? Yeah, absolutely. So that was probably the biggest um, thing <laughs> of the entire project was actually the admin of organising all of those different placements. Um, say, uh, so I, I'm not particularly well connected. I, I don't have a large personal network or professional network. I was at the time 24, so I pretty much knew nobody. So I was really starting from scratch with that. Um, so I think it was a combination sort of 50-50 of um, just cold calling, of making sort of lists of organizations I'd absolutely love to work for and just emailing them uh, and using sort of uh, being, yeah, using my network and kind of asking for people to introduce me to people to introduce me to people and that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, I do have some top tips that I'd recommend for both of those two halves. Um, so on the cold calling approach, I'd say uh, I had a much better success rate with smaller businesses and organizations. Um, partly because you can directly contact the person you would want to kind of have a similar job to. You can find usually find that person 
contact details uh, and just get in touch with them very, very directly, or at least it's much more likely that your email will reach the right person. Uh, and they have the flexibility to make much quicker decisions than larger organizations. Um, I'd also say it's numbers game, very much so. Um, so I'd expect to contact you know, 15 plus different organizations for every little work shadowing placement or work experience placement that you'd like to do. Um, and not to kind of see that as a sign of failure, just it, it is a bit of a numbers game. And then on the networking side, um, I was left initially asking straight out for work experience placements. So it was asking to just go for a coffee, have a Zoom call or whatever it was with somebody. Um, and then once you've sort of developed that professional rapport, it's then asking them about sort of a work shadowing or work experience opportunity and always, always, always asking them to put me in touch with two or three other people in the industry that might be able to help. Now, as you say, the, the experiment uh, changed the course of your life. Uh, what did you end up doing? What did you settle on in the end? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really went into the project thinking I'm going to pick one of these 25 careers. That's going to be my dream job and I'm going to do that forevermore. Um, and that's not what happened at all. Um, so I ended up uh, with a portfolio career sort of focused around a specific cause. Um, and so to me, that ended up being about helping other people get into a career that they love. Um, and I kind of come at that from lots of different directions. So as you mentioned, I've, I've, I'm an author. I've written a book about it and I, I write regularly uh, in the press about it too. Uh, I work as a speaker. So I, I've given a TED talk. But I also speak across businesses, schools and universities um, around the UK and, and Europe more widely, all on these sorts of subjects. Um, but I've also were, uh, moved into sort of a tech startup world. So how do you scale the impact of helping people be happy at work? How do you use software to do that? Uh, so at the moment, for example, I am working as uh, running up, uh, heading up a scholarship fund for one of the largest scholarship providers um, in the UK. So helping uh, disadvantaged uh, school pupils get into university and providing scholarships, then, but using sort of tech to help us do that. Well, it's a certainly an extraordinary success story and a, an extraordinary journey journey for you personally, but you're using it now to, to good effect, helping others. Um, so during the course uh, of, of time between you, you took your sabbatical and now that you're running your successful business, have you seen the landscape and openness to sabbaticals changing within companies? I mean, I mentioned at the outset the war for talent is very acute now. So are people and companies willing to, to give more uh, scope to their employees to try out new careers in a way that they weren't maybe four or five years ago when you started? down this journey? Yes, I think that's very noticeable as a change over the past few years, I think particularly post-pandemic. I think COVID has uh, forced quite a lot of us to reassess our priorities, um, both in terms of our work-life balance, but also about the actual type of work that we're doing and what we're working for and towards. Um, But I think that therefore has put a huge amount of pressure on employers. Um, I think there's a bit of nuance in that. So I think larger organisations in general um, it's easier to get that approval purely because they have the workforce to support that. Um, smaller organizations, I'd say, it generally is a bit more of a case-by-case basis. They're less likely to, say, have uh, sabbatical policies in place, or it might even just be literally down to that kind of uh, individual managerial kind of view on it and whether that's something they're able to cover. And when you wrote this book, it was particularly targeted at millennials. Why did you choose that? And are there learnings in it that, that you feel older people could still use and utilise? Yeah, so at the time I focused it on millennials because I think we, that, that kind of generation, the generation that I, I belong to, were experiencing a very specific set of pressures around uh, basically the social contract 
uh, being broken. So the idea that you work, you know, your, your entire adult life and it reaps the rewards of having a good pension, a lovely home, um, work-life balance, all those sorts of things. And that being less and less the case for millennials and now Gen Z. So it kind of wanted to approach some of those specific topics. That being said, I definitely wrote it with a much broader audience in mind. I think the vast majority, 90 to 95% of it, I think, would be uh, applicable to a wider audience that is interested in taking some time out specifically to think about your career. Um, whilst I go into kind of a lot of the anecdotes of my own sabbatical, the vast majority of this is very practical um, in, okay, well, how do you go and write that cover letter that you want to send to that company to ask for work experience with an adult professional looking to change careers? So it's, it's really much more of a self-help book in, in that way and less specifically focused on millennials. Yeah, it is certainly full of practical advice. It's also full of uh, the unique stories uh, that you have. I remember one in particular that, that you had about this this notion of working on a farm and you ended up in mm. an alpaca farm in January, which doesn't sound as nice as maybe <laughs> working on an alpaca, an alpaca farm in June. Um, but was there a particular profession that you thought going into this, I love that, uh, or I love the idea of that, that you came away thinking that's absolutely not for me? <laughs> Uh, there was a couple, yes, that is true. Uh, I think they were just because they weren't what I, it wasn't so much the career itself, it was more the way that I would, whether I'd be any good at, good at that job or not. Um, and I, they just really served to highlight the importance of trying things out before you commit to a career change in them. Um, and one of them particularly for me was working in publishing, specifically in travel publishing, which for me made a load of sense at the start. I, I loved kind of going, cracking all that sort of stuff, you know, in my yeah. early 20s. Um, and working in publishing, it was really, really interesting. I've, I've since written a book. Um, but working on the publishing side of it and the editorial side of it, so I'm very, very dyslexic. So for me, spelling and proofreading and all that sort of thing is just like the worst thing you could ask me to do. And it was all I was doing all day long. And I was just, I was just really bad at it, to be honest. Um, and so it's that kind of understanding that you actually get to grips with it really quick, quite quickly, you know, two or three days. And you're like, oh, actually, I, I understand why I might not be so good at this job or why this is actually brilliant, for example. Mm. Um, you get to grips with it quite quickly, which is why I think well, those short-term work experience placements for adults, professionals, uh, are actually really, really beneficial. It's something that I'm working to kind of try and change the perspective on. Yeah, I certainly learned that that the key lesson from all of your experiences was to try and find what your strengths are and then to play mm. to those. Final word on this, Emma, before I let you go. Just give us some quick advice. If someone's out there listening now uh, wants to try and get a sabbatical to test out another career, how do they approach their employer to do that? Yeah, so I think it's a range of things. It's something I would start planning quite far in advance, partly for your own sort of financial security. Um, I would say start kind of building up a savings pot as far in advance as you possibly can. Um, and I think it's when approaching an employer, it's about uh, approaching that as gently as possible to kind of say mutually agreed timescale. So, you know, are we proposing a full-on year here or are we proposing three months? Is it six weeks? What are you going to get out of that, mm. particularly if it's around a career goal? Are you, you know, obviously the idea is from an employer's perspective, you'll be coming back. So what are the skills that you're aiming to gain from that sabbatical that you can bring back? Um, so what, what's in it for the employer? And I fully put together a proper little pitch deck. I, I really make it very, very clear, um, almost like a little sales pitch, sales pitch um, for, for that um, manager so that you can kind of make the case as strongly as possible. Well, that's very sound advice from you, Emma. Um, an end point is is 
probably the most important part of all this to know exactly what it is you're aiming for. But instead of thinking about if we can afford to take some time out to think about these things, maybe we should be asking ourselves if we can afford not to. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Emma Rosen, author of The Radical Sabbatical. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, investment in Italian football clubs intensifies, but will it be a game changer for the league that's struggling to compete at European level? That's after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Recently, a number of deep-pocketed investors have bought up some very famous Italian teams. Priced out of the Premiership, there are attractive options for revenue returns across Serie A. Here to explain what's been happening and to talk about the future of Italian football and what it holds, I'm joined now by Lorenzo Cassini, who's president of Serie A. Lorenzo, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hello. Lorenzo, there's a very strong affinity here with Italian football. We've, of course, had uh, an Italian manager in Trapattoni and Marco Tardelli has been an assistant manager. We've also had very famous international players. Liam Brady uh, is one of them. And recently I heard a podcast by him where he was talking about the 1980s and what was a golden era uh, for Syria. Uh, they were at the very top of uh, the top five countries in European football. Can you just take us back a little bit and give us a flavour of how prominent Italian football has been globally? Well, uh, data clearly show how the Serie A was successful. Uh, if you consider the winners of the Ballon d'Or, of the Golden Bowl, for example, so just have some name the, from the Netherlands, Ruth Gullit, Marco Van Basten, uh, but before we had Michel Platini, and uh, in the 90s, we also have a golden age. So in the 80s and in the 90s, thanks to uh, players like Maradona, Zico, I mean, Serie A was considered absolutely the top uh, of, of soccer. So I think that this, this data names gives the idea. If you also see the list of winners of European Cups, you can have the same impression. That's right. And then things started to change. Obviously, um, you opened up to foreign players. And as you mentioned, there are some names who came in who were not just famous in the 1980s or 90s, but, you know, will be famous for all time uh, wanting to go to Italy to play in Syria. Of course, Italy obviously won the World Cup themselves in, in 1982 and attracted many players because of that. But what then changed in the dynamic uh, in terms of moving uh, from outside of Italy you know, to other countries like the UK, uh, the Bundesliga and La Liga? Well, probably the, the most uh, uh, significant change that was also what scholars had detected in the studies that were produced about this phenomenon is that in the golden age of Serie A, um, the, the, the teams invested man, money mainly, if not exclusively, uh, on players. Mm. And uh, so they didn't uh, invest that much on infrastructure. We had uh, the, the you, you mentioned the 1990 World Cup, but that occasion was somehow lost uh, because uh, the infrastructure were not built in a way that probably should have done like it was already in the United Kingdom or in other countries. So... Starting in 2003 and 2006, and then we have also the scandal of Calciopoli, uh, progressively uh, you have seen uh, a decay. I mean, the, the players uh, went to go on the Premier League or 
And you see again the winners of the Golden Ball started the, the Liga era, no, with Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi. Um, so, but if you ask me what is the main reason, is that probably we lost uh, track on infrastructure. Yeah, and maybe they were slow to to commercialise football in a way that other countries weren't. But that issue of infrastructure is an important one when we're talking about revenue raising uh, in football. Is is it right Italian clubs don't own their grounds? Can you talk us through that um, structure of who owns the the stadium? Uh, We, we, in Serie A, we had only four teams out of 20 uh, which own the stadium. Uh, the other stadiums are owned by municipal authority and the, I mean, the Olimpico of Rome is owned directly by the Italian state, so through, through a company uh, that, that belongs to the, to the Italian state. But let me say the problem of ownership doesn't refer that much on revenues because at the end, in most cases, these teams uh, pay a fee, an annual fee that is not that high. And then the revenues of the uh, match day's revenues goes all to the teams. Oh. Uh, the problem of ownership is uh, most related to the slowness of in, or if you have to do some works or if you have to for maintenance, extraordinary maintenance, or if you want to renovate or if you want to build your own stadium, of course, and you want to start from the old one. So in all, in all that circumstances, the fact that you have to deal with an Italian public administration doesn't help. I don't. I, 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 I think that I don't have to add that much. Now, you're a former head of, of cabinet to the Italian Ministry of Culture. Hopefully your government experience should be able to help you to help clubs to navigate the bureaucratic minefield that is sports administration. And they often struggle with that, don't they? Sports administrators and even business people who come into sport. Uh, is that part of your plan to try and help clubs? Yeah, that's part of also the reason why I accepted the, uh, the, the, the this new position, and also was the reason why I understood why they were uh, looking for someone with my experience. Because in the in the past years, the league was not that able to help and to assist teams in uh, have a uh, more uh, positive dialogue with the government and infrastructure. So I, I hope that that will be. Hopefully, I mean, just a few days ago, we signed a very important agreement, a memorandum of understanding, the league, with the Minister of Education and the Department for Sport in order to have a league more present in schools. That was something that was never done before. Yeah, um, and actually that's one thing I wanted to pick up on was the cultural aspect of football in Italy. Um, You're a former, as I say, head of cabinet for the Ministry of Culture. How deeply ingrained is the sport in your culture? And do you get a sense that that's diminishing in any way? Uh, It's interesting because between culture and sports, uh, there is still, and of course in Italy, a strong relationship that is given by fact. Uh, what 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 is diminishing is the perception by public opinion that sports can be uh, related to culture, mm. uh, but it is. And uh, because if you see how kids start playing uh, a game or start playing soccer, and how important it is to to understand uh, the concept, uh, the differences between each other, and the respect for play. Uh, no discrimination, all these uh, values are uh, immediately understood uh, on the pitch. 
Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the investment that's happening at the moment, uh, foreign buyers coming in to, to clubs. And you, you've said that you want to warn against short term investments and what that might do to the sport. Um, can you just talk me through why you feel um, those short term profits uh, might affect the longer term investment? Well, probably the reason is what we were discussing before. No? That at the moment, Serie A needs uh, investment uh, in infrastructure, in uh, changing uh, some mind assets, for example, in uh, developing the women sector and investing more on young athletes. So if you see Serie A as a possible uh, play, uh, play field for uh, speculation or financial speculation, that's not good for the league. And I think uh, of investment of two, three years. No, you buy the team, you buy players again, like in the 80s and the 90s. You, you hope to win something and then you resell again the team. So that's not good. But a five, seven years uh, term could be a good, a good term if you want to, to build an infrastructure, to strengthen the uh, training center. So that's what we hope. So you'd like to see a business clause built in where investors remain on longer than five years. You want to see a longer commitment. But investors aren't always interested in the progression of the clubs or even the sport. It's just business to them. Uh, Yes, but it depends because in most cases we have seen and that's the case, for example, we have with Fiorentina, Bologna, Rome, Spezia. So we have foreign investors with passion so they... They came to stay, you know, to build, to build a new stadium. To that's what really helped uh, the Serie A as a whole. Mm. Um, obviously, as you said earlier, the, the main benchmark of uh, progression in football or or success is is success at European level. Uh, the last time uh, an Italian team held the UEFA Champions League uh, title was, I think, back in two thousand and ten. Um, yeah, and also. Inter. <laughs> and indeed, and Juventus also held um, <clears throat> the domestic title for a consecutive nine years. That's not particularly good for soccer. What do you think that you can do to make the competition and the league more successful in terms of um, how it competes in Europe at European level and get them back into that yeah. uh, space? Well, there are many facts. There are many factors. For example, during those nine years, Juventus uh, uh, was able to reach the final of Champions League twice, but uh, Juventus lost against Real Madrid and Barcelona. So, of course, at the end, uh, nobody uh, remembers the second. So, but, <laughs> uh, uh, but so if uh, Juventus uh, would have won one of the two, so probably the story would have, would have changed. Uh, but beside this, uh, this episode, um, what we need is, on the one hand, more competitiveness in the championship, but this is what we had last year, no? with Milan and Inter together uh, tied uh, until the very, the very last uh, Sunday. And uh, also, we, we should uh, improve uh, the championship as a, as a whole, as I, as I told you before. So from this perspective, uh, we, should, we should invest more in the quality of uh, our infrastructure and training centre. Just um, looking <clears throat> across the water at the, the Premiership in the UK um, and some figures from the financial year 2019 to 2020, 
So um, Syria A was about one billion euro behind uh, Spain's La Liga and a billion behind um, the Bundesliga, uh, the Bundesliga in Germany. But the Premiership were streets ahead, three billion. How does Syria A begin to compete with English teams? Do you see a lot of Italian sports fans now supporting English teams? Mm, well, there are. Uh, probably we we need two things. One, uh, we already did it. In the in the last weeks, because we had uh, let's say a weird legislation here in Italy in the last years that uh, was very limiting the negotiation of broadcasting rights abroad because it was imposing to Syria lots of procedure uh, time limits and that was uh, something not helping in comparison with other leagues. Mm. Uh, so that this is one uh, one one reason. Uh, the other reason is that we uh, should probably uh, work more of what what is the right of uh, archives and uh, past uh, past uh, images that we have. Because at the moment, legislation separates the archives from what's happening in the season, and this also is limiting how you can sell the product because. We discussed this at the beginning of our conversation. No, Serie A has a strong value in its history and tradition. So, if you sell Serie A to someone abroad, mm. and you cannot and you cannot sell uh, the images of Maradona, Van Basten, or Platini, that changes, of course. No, absolutely. And I think that history um, of Serie A, you know, there's a generation who who probably don't appreciate. Uh, just how amazing that that period in time was. Um, you mentioned earlier the issue of women's football and of course um, we've seen the success last weekend uh, of the football, the Euros that happened in the UK. Um, in terms of investment, what do you think needs to be done in Italy to progress the, the game there and is it something that's growing in popularity in Italy as well? Yes, I mean, besides, unfortunately, our national team uh, didn't go uh, as we expected in the now European Cup. But besides that, the movement is growing and uh, there are uh, teams also in the Serie A which are investing. What we we need is uh, mainly more infrastructure, even here, because there are teams uh, which are not able to, to have their women uh, team because they don't do not have the infrastructure to host it. So uh, this is one point. The other is a matter of culture that is, that is of course getting better. So the idea that uh, soccer uh, is a sport old, old for women as it, as it is for men. No, so that that that, that is typical in southern countries of Europe. That you know, I mean, this data shows that. The, the gender issue is uh, much more difficult than in northern countries. So this is something that where uh, soccer can help. Lorenzo, I just wanted to ask you, obviously infrastructure is a word that you've you've repeated often here. Do you see that infrastructural investment coming directly from government or do you see it coming from business or do you see it a partnership between both? Mm, uh, let's say this, that what we experience is that if you want to build an infrastructure like a stadium, usually you do not have a serious problem of money because it's a kind of investment that if you have good at doing that, uh, it's, a, it's something that you will earn about it. But the problem we have in Italy is that the bureaucracy allowing mm. you to build this structure. Uh, 
so from this perspective, we are obliged to have a partnership. Yeah, because and the partnership will, will help it progress. The partnership works yeah. well. Works well because then you have part of public money. Because we, we discussed this before. I mean, most of the stadium have a public ownership, and then you have also a private investor that could be the team or could be a sponsor. But we had problems, for example, even in having a naming the naming of the stadium because some municipal authority was against the naming. <laughs> so. Um, just finally, if if I can pick you up on your previous career a- again, um, we've seen recently and we talked about it at length on this programme, the resignation of Mario Draghi. And so you're you're facing into elections. What's the landscape like there uh, and the timing of those elections? When are they likely to happen? And will sport and, and football feature as part of the policy discussion at all? Uh, I mean, uh, it's too early because uh, let's say that the middle of the campaign will start in the in the next uh, in the next weeks. Uh, us- I can tell you that usually sports, uh, like culture, and this is a paradox, is not in the middle of the debate in Italy. Probably because uh, you know the, the Italians uh, usually they do not discuss that much of something that they think they are the best. well on that on that note Lorenzo we might leave it there thank you so much for taking the time to to share uh, your thoughts with us today Uh, that was Lorenzo Cassini who is president of Syria A well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings we are available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app if you want to get in contact with us you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com my thanks to all of today's guests and to producer Aoife Breen with Jojo Cardoso on sound Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and he'll be reviewing all of our Sunday newspapers but for now that's Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston thank Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Sunday morning at nine on News Talk.